It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. Experience more episodes, videos, and Bible study resources at ChristianQuestions.com. Today's topic is, What is the Biblical Process to Become Perfect? Part 2. So many Christians believe that people who do not follow Christ now have lost their chance for eternal life. However, the Bible teaches something very different. It actually teaches that all will have a future opportunity for eternal human life. Wait, wait, wait. How is that even possible? Here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome, everyone. I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host, for over 25 years. Jonathan, what's our theme scripture for this episode? Isaiah 11:9. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In part one of our series, we focused on how the New Testament describes perfection. We found out that Jesus, though perfect, had to be further perfected, further completed by his personal experiences and sufferings in order to fully pay the ransom price for Adam. Similarly, but on a much smaller scale, Jesus' disciples have a perfect beginning as well. Now, now stay with me on this. They're given forgiveness for their sins, they're given God's Holy Spirit, and they are called sons of God. With these perfect gifts, they also need to be perfected, to be completed in maturity in Christ. This present-day perfecting work is clearly defined in Scripture. So, what about everyone else? Does the Bible show a perfecting work for them? It does. Today, we're going to look at another biblical perfecting process that is not quite as well defined and is also a future work instead of being a present work. So there's some big differences here, but and there's actually a difference in the end result, but we're going to see all of this unfold. So Jonathan, let's do a quick scriptural recap of the perfection process from our last episode. Let's just pick it up with Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. The head of the body, the church. We talked about the perfecting of Jesus, the perfecting of the body of Christ, the church. He's the beginning. It's all about him having first place in everything. And, and when you look at the perfecting process of the followers of Christ, uh, what we see is a situation where they have hard experiences. So let's just quickly go back to God's plan for perfection for all levels of his creation in relation to the followers of Christ. We have trials. They are specifically given to those who are complete, who are justified, and have God's Spirit as an exercise for our completeness. We are complete by God's grace, and yet we need to be completed through our development. Let the trials come and the perfecting work continue. So let them come, because it's there for the purpose of the building up of the completeness in Christ. So now we look at how this perfecting process moves forward. We talked last week about that part, but there's more to it than that. So let's stay with the same scripture, Colossians chapter 1. This time, let's go to verses 19 to 20. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. 
And Jonathan, if you remember, last week we started the episode with this Revelation scripture. Remember, it was this big, complete picture. Yes. And it, it was so magnificent. Well, this scripture is the same kind of thing. It says, having made peace through the blood of his cross, whether things are in earth or in heaven. So you have this sense of something bigger than many of us as Christians have ever looked at is being shown to us in the scriptures. What is it? How does it work? Who does it entail? And the answer is everybody. But before we get to the big everybody, there is a, a, another group that we have to address. Okay, What happens to all of God's amazingly faithful prophets and people who came before Jesus? Are they promised to go to heaven? Jesus himself said no. Let's give an example of that because he was pretty emphatic. Jesus, here in, in this next scripture, is speaking of John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 11, verses 9 through 11. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Well, one who is least in heaven will be greater than John. Why? Because he will be resurrected on the earth since he died before Jesus offered himself on the cross. The door to the heavenly call opened for the followers of Jesus after Pentecost. So you have a timing situation, but you have great, great faithfulness before the call to heaven. So we want to take a few minutes and really look at what does that great faithfulness look like? And, and folks, I'll tell you, it is fascinating because we're going to see some really remarkable things come out in comparison to what we talked about last week. These faithful ones, these, these ones who were before Jesus, they had this amazing faith and loyalty, and they were described uh, in, in a very familiar way to us based on our last podcast. We're going to give three examples of those faithful ones from the Old Testament. The first example is that of Noah. Uh, Jonathan, let's go to Genesis chapter 6, verses 8 to 9. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. The Old Testament word for perfect here means entire, literally, figuratively, or morally. Also, as a noun, integrity and truth. I love that word for lots of reasons, but one of the big reasons for today is because when we talked last week about the perfecting of the followers of Christ, all these words for perfect really meant complete, and that's what you're seeing here. Noah was in his generation, had integrity, had truth. He was entire in his moral character. It just gives you this incredibly inspirational look at how he stood and what he stood for. Since Noah was complete before God, he used him and his family to build new generations for mankind. He did, because they had to start over. And so you've got this perfect, this complete, this full of integrity individual there, but he's not the only one. Let's look at the next example of Abraham, Genesis 17, verses 1 and 2. 
And when Abraham was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am the almighty God, walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. Same word, be thou entire, be thou full of integrity and truth, and I will make you essentially the father of the savior of the whole world. I mean, it's, it's just an amazing thing. Be perfect, be complete, very similar to what we talked about last week. Last example is Job, Job chapter one, verse one. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright. Perfect here means complete or morally pious, and he was one that feared God and eschewed or turned evil away. So you have these three examples of standing above the crowd, standing outside of the flow of normal sinful humanity and God being able to use them in very, very special ways. And it's remarkable because those are just three examples. We could do podcast after podcast after podcast for a year and a half and still not go through. (laughs) I'm serious. And still not go through all of their examples. That's how many there are and that's how deep their characters were. So, So God certainly does have a place for them. But where is it? When is it? How is it? Rick, with these three examples, Noah, Abraham, and Job, God approved of them. So we can't say they won't be resurrected. Right, right. And, and th- that's a powerful, powerful, powerful thought. And we're going to look at the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, several scriptures in Hebrews 11 to help us put their experience, their example, their quote-unquote perfection in order. So let's start with Hebrews eleven thirty-nine, And Hebrews 11 is that chapter that talks about so many of these faithful ones from ancient times. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. They gained approval. That's just what you said before, Jonathan. They are in a place where God looks upon them with shine, the shining eyes of, of the Almighty Father in heaven that says, you are, you are my servant. You have done well. They were in many, many ways promised God's favor, his protection, and so forth. But you know, heaven wasn't promised to them. Hebrews chapter 11, let's go back to earlier in the chapter, verses 8 through 10. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. God's favor to Abraham was giving him the promised land as an everlasting inheritance. But you notice it says he lived in that land as an alien, intense. So he's given it, but he didn't get it. And see, we want to understand that because that's part of this whole equation as we develop it further. Let's look at the example of Moses in Hebrews eleven twenty-seven to 28. By faith, he, Moses, left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was unseen. By faith he kept the Passover, the sprinkling of the blood, so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. The firstborn were delivered first at Passover. Then, the next morning, the nation was delivered. The Passover picture is showing that there is also a second born. 
And that thought is going to come through in a resounding way as we, as we build the case for scriptural perfecting of the world of mankind. But here Moses was given deliverance. He was given the ability to not only be delivered, but to deliver the entire nation out of slavery. The point is they were given something from God, but it wasn't heaven. It was never heavenly. And, and that's important. Let's go to Hebrews eleven forty. Because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. God provided something better for us. Now, you got to pause there and say, whoa, wait a minute. You mean to tell me that in this plan, followers, true followers of Christ are promised something better than Moses and Abraham and Job and and Noah and, and all of those ancient ones? And the answer is yes. And it says that they would, without us would not be made perfect. That same word for perfect, Old New Testament, be made complete that we talked about so much last week. Here's the thing. There's a powerful connection between those ancient faithful ones and those called now to follow Jesus. There's a connection. We see that you've got this perfection, this completeness in, in both examples. But listen to this next piece as we get there. Hebrews 11.13, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Now, in earth society, they stood above others serving God. And so we confess that they were strangers and pilgrims. They were different. That's the key here. Let's look at 1 Peter 2.11 and see if there's something in this verse that talks about Christians that sounds just kind of similar. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Our journeys are similar. I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. You see, there's these connections between them and us that we cannot deny. And God looks upon those things in a very, very, very strong way. So our journeys are similar, and the reward of our loyalty will be to serve God through eternity. But in different places. Okay, and that's important. That's important. They without us should not be made perfect. God providing something better. We're following what the scriptures are teaching us. The last two verses of the book of Daniel reveal a wonderful expansion of this thought for ancient ones. Let's look at Daniel chapter 12, verses 12 to 13. These are the last two verses of the book. Blessed is he that waiteth and cometh to the thousand three hundred and five and thirty days. But go thy way, Daniel, till the end be, for thou shalt rest in the grave and stand in thy lot at the end of the days. Now, Daniel's lot, his reward will be standing on the earth in Israel, the promised land, to continue to serve God in a special way. The best way, you know, we can describe them is princes on the earth. So you've got something very special for those faithful ones of the Old Testament. God's not forgetting them. So when we look at this, God's plan for perfection for all levels of his creation, we're focusing on one thing right here, right now. What do we have? God is wise, all-seeing, loving, and just. He never leaves faithfulness out in the cold and is preordained what kind of reward it will have. God has shown us that his ancient faithful ones will be raised to a life in a unique way as they have already proven their loyalty. They will be leaders and teachers among the human race. This is really a phenomenal beginning to understanding the breadth of how God's plan works. It really... It's really amazing. It's really amazing to start putting the pieces 
of God's plan and order. These heroes of faith will be raised on earth and they will continue their heroism. So, all chosen and faithful servants of God will be have resurrections of power and glory. Will it be that way for the rest of mankind? All right. As we're about to see, the rest of humanity will be raised to a time of new life, but it will be a time of testing as well. Why? Because God is just. He never has and he never will arbitrarily give eternal life to anyone who has not been tested through and through. This process of perfection will be brought to humanity in a very different way than what we've already seen. So we're suggesting that, yes, there is a process, but it's going to be entirely different. So we need to unfold that. We need to unpack it. How do we do that? Let's put three separate scriptures together to introduce the perfecting process for all of humanity. All right, so we're going to take three very different scriptures that are talking about the same general subject and put them sort of to help tell the story as each has their part. We're going to begin with the big picture of the conditions necessary for this perfecting to unfold. We're going to start with 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to come back to this several times. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 22. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. All means all. So what are you trying to say? <laughs> <laughs> you know, what, what, it, what it comes down to is the scriptures are very, very plain. And look, I know that this may not fit in with preconceived notions about what the Bible teaches, but instead of having a preconceived notion, let's look at the words, let's look at the context, and let's put it all together. All die in Adam, all are made alive in Christ. Now, from our last episode, we were clearly reminded that Jesus, remember it said that Jesus had overcome the world. He had learned obedience by the things he suffered, and he was, quote-unquote, perfected. He was made complete. As a result of that, he was given amazing, great authority. Let's look at John five twenty-six to 29 to get a picture of that. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in their tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So now we're going to come back to this verse later, but this puts it in perspective. He's given great authority to be able to call those who were in the sleep of death out of death. This is the authority that he's given through his faithfulness. So this authority, this power to bring them back uh, will not, will in no way be arbitrary. It won't be like, well, I wonder what's next. I wonder how this is going to work. It is a clear, concise process. It follows a deliberate pattern. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23, to add the next detail. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits after those who are Christ at his coming. Now, let's focus on the second fruits. Just like you talked about after the Passover, there was the firstborn, and the, that implies a secondborn. First fruits, second fruits. See, the scriptures give us themes. We need to pick up on those themes and apply them. 
all of those being brought back from the grave will be brought back into an entirely different environment than they had ever known. A completely, completely different environment. An Old Testament prophecy helps unfold how Jesus, who overcame the world through his loyalty to God, will then rule that new world in righteousness. There is such power in this prophecy found in Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Well, when Jesus calls mankind from the grave, he has the power to do so because he is king. It says he will be a father to them. You know, and you look at that, and, and it also says there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. Can you imagine there's no end to the increase of peace? We have no idea what that looks like in this world. This sounds like a happily ever after to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, and in many ways it is. Actually, in many ways it is. However, there are further steps needed to bring God's plan to its final and finished format. Because as good as this sounds, there's still more to it. So let's go back to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 to 26, to bring in the next step. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Now, this is happily ever after. <laughs> Jesus hands the perfect kingdom over to God. The work is done. No more death. What does that look like? It's pretty much impossible to even imagine it because it's so far beyond our imagination. But the whole process of death will itself die. It will become a has-been. It will be a thing of the past because... Everything will have been perfected to such a point that death is no longer a necessity. It's no longer a consequence. It's no longer a part of what God has created. So this is, this is huge. I mean, like, what? This, is, is, this is, sounds too good to be true, just like you said, happily ever after, okay? But, but getting to this end result begins with our present state of affairs. And I don't want to put a, yeah, I do want to burst the bubble. So let's, yeah, let's, do. yeah, I do, I do. So <laughs> let, let's burst the bubble here and now, because let's come back to where we are. Romans chapter one, verses 18 to 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. This scripture in Romans is very, very powerful in its perspective of saying, and I'm going to do a lot of paraphrasing here, mankind, look around you, look at the magnificence, the intricacy of what you see around you, and just admit that it came from an intelligent designer. Our world can't do that. We self-destruct Instead of saying, wow, this is an intelligence that's bigger than we can ever imagine. I mean, look, God is visible now. Now, can you say, well, 
People are going to, okay, show me where God is. Well, he's not visible in the chaos and turmoil of our social order, and he's not visible in the decisions and belief systems that humanity has followed. No, no, no. He is visible in the magnificence of creation. He's visible in the interdependency of things like butterflies and flowers. Something as simple, look it up. It just is mind-blowing how butterflies and flowers can't exist without each other. Coincidence? No. Happen by chance? Not possible. It's there. He's visible in the cycles of nature. He's visible in the utter complexity of DNA, which is only in the history of mankind recently discovered. And we think we're so smart for discovering it. Hey, newsflash, God put it there. We miss it. We look around and we make excuses. And that's what Romans is saying. Look at what you have. You have evidence. Oh, no, but we don't want that evidence. We want it to be our way. What happens as a result? Romans 1, 21 to 23. For even though they knew God, had the evidence of who God is, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So the end result of the magnificence of what God has given us, the end result of any world or social order that functions based upon sin and ego rather than on loyalty to that which is higher, the end result is always the same. It always ends up with worshiping and honoring the created in one way or another rather than he who put it in place, the creator, almighty God. So the work of perfecting starts here? How do you take the billions of society over all the generations which never acknowledge God and turn them around? What a mess. Yeah, yeah. This is a far cry, a far cry from what we just saw prophecy reveal. And here's the thing. The reason we burst the bubble and went back to where we are is because we need to understand the contrast between what God's future through prophecy absolutely looks like and what our present through experience is. And you're right. It's a mess. It is like, this You can't be. This, this can't happen. This, it's too big of a mess. Remember that. Think about that as we continue to unfold this biblical approach to the perfecting process of humanity. So, Jonathan, as we wrap up this piece, God's plan for perfection for all levels of his creation, where are we so far? Imagining the glorious end result of God's plan in relation to what our world looks like and acts like right now can awaken a sense of impossibility. We may question, doubt, or even dismiss that end result as a fairy tale, a fictional formula that is only suitable as a child's story. Yet, God, in his wisdom, has the method for working this out firmly in hand. So we talked about, sounds like happily ever after. Well, happily ever after is a child story ending. And so a lot of people look at this and say, too good to be true, impossible. Look at the mess. It can't happen. Folks, what we're telling you is that the scriptures tell a different story. We need to understand where we are in relation to the stream of time with biblical scripture right in front of us. And it becomes exciting in the face of what looks like something that's impossible. So the plot thickens. What looks impossible 
is actually a clearly stated truth that has already begun to unfold. So, how does God's plan for affording every human being who ever lived an equal and just opportunity for perfection actually play out? All right, well, we put the big picture in place so we can now focus on the details of humanity's billions being resurrected from their graves. Our focus will begin with the conditions that precede this resurrection and then look at the how of the matter. So practically, let's ask the question right here, right now. Practically, how does this perfecting process work for the rest of the world? And the answer, Jonathan, is painfully simple, and it's going to need a little bit of explanation. But the simple answer is it works one resurrected person at a time. And that sounds trite, but stay with us. Let's unfold it. I'm excited to discuss this next section and see the perfecting process of how the billions and billions become a glory to God. I want to yeah. see the happily ever after. <laughs> okay, so we're looking for that happily ever after. You're not giving up on that, are you? No, I'm not. <laughs> All right, then. All right, so here's the thing. First, again, let's put things in context. First conditions will be dire before all of that begins. Dire. Let's look at it very quickly through a couple of scriptures in Matthew and Luke. Matthew 24, 21 through 22. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Let's add Luke's perspective about this same time period, Luke 21, 26. Man's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. We are getting to see how sin has to run its course to show how bad life becomes without godliness. Jonathan, that's a big statement, and that can be a theoretical statement. It can be a statement that you say, yeah, 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 you know, you really don't need all of that. Let let me give you a very hard, clear example, real-life example in my own life. Many years ago, and you know, because you were my close, close friend during this whole situation, when my youngest daughter, Amy, was only 15 years old, she was raped. And that was a devastating, life-changing experience, and the next many years— were filled with challenges like we had never had before. And you look back on those and you look at our daughter now and she is just this wonderful person. That experience did not break her. It actually made her strong. And you look at that and say, I never want to go back to that because it was, it was a horror in our lives. It was a trauma. But I don't want to ever give up what I've learned from it. And that's a microcosm of this time of trouble and of all of the sin and death in the world. You never want to go back to it. But if you're properly exercised, look what can come from it. And the beautiful thing is, you just read scriptures about the time of trouble. Well, this time of trouble will come to an end. What will replace it is the day of judgment. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Now, this sounds ominous. Uh, What about the whole perfecting thing? (laughs) Yeah, like, wait, like judgment? What? What? What's going on here? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Well, let's establish how the day of judgment works. And again, this is a statement. When you say day of judgment, many of us who have 
have a, a familiarity of some kind with the Bible, look at that and say, oh no, you don't want to be there. Contrarily, listen, listen to how it unfolds. The day of judgment will be a day of testing. Why? Well, it will be for the purpose of perfecting. Let's go back to John 5, 28 and 29 that we read before. Marvel not at this, for the hour cometh in which all that are in their tombs shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, the heavenly, those that will have life within themselves, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of judgment, earthly, the everybody else. Now, judgment here is defined as decision by extension, a tribunal by implication, justice. So judgment here is not defined as a final sentence. And that's, no, it, that's critical. That's critical for understanding how does all of this work. It's not a final sentence, but it is a time of reckoning, a time, a tribunal, a time of judging, a trial, a contest. It's a bigger, much bigger thing than most of us. Most of us think of it as a moment, you're guilty or not guilty. No, no, no. It's a day of testing, of building. So here's another factor about the day of judgment. The judgment day will be a day of restraint. Rick, but, but why? For the purpose of perfecting the people of the world. Let's look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 to, to help us understand that. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to rescue the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. Well, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> what does the word punished mean? It means, this is interesting, Rick, to lop or prune as trees and wings, to curb, check, restrain, to chastise, correct, or to cause to be punished. A lot is in this word, punished. So the idea of punished is not to, you bad person, let me beat you for your bad example or bad actions no. or bad thoughts or whatever. It is to pull back, to lop and to prune. It's like going to boot camp. 16 years ago, my son went into the Coast Guard, our son Tim, and I'll never forget his boot camp experience because, you know, he went in as the, the Tim that we knew and he came out essentially as a highly trained, focused individual. And you looked at it and said, wait, what happened? Well, there was a lopping, a pruning off of the things that he didn't need because he was being formed into that individual to do the jobs that would be before him. So you have that sense of building through taking away, taking away those things that don't belong. Well, think about it. Pruning promotes growth. Yeah. You cut away the unwanted parts that take away from the ability to produce fruit. Yes, exactly, exactly, exactly. The fruit tree is to produce fruit, and so you don't want the unnecessary things. That's part of the day of judgment. It's a day of restraint. Furthermore, judgment day applies equally to all who have ever lived. Why? <laughs> <laughs> For the purpose of perfecting all who have ever lived. So you have the equal opportunity through the equal work to get to where they need to go. Let's look at Matthew 11, verses 20 to 24 to help us see this in a bigger way. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable or bearable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. 
Let's go to the commentary by Matthew Poole. Tyre and Sidon were habitations of heathens, their country joined to Galilee. They were places of great traffic, inhabited with Canaanitish idolaters and exceedingly wicked, a people odious to the Jews upon many accounts. So they were not good people. And they weren't kind, they weren't good to God's chosen people. And you have history bearing that out. And so we've got this Tyre and Sidon is being compared with Chorazin and Bethsaida, where Jesus was. And they're saying, hey, they're in a better shape than you are. So now hold that thought, because it gets even bigger in verses 23 and 24. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles that occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Sodom. Here was a city specifically destroyed by fire and brimstone because of its inherent evil and wickedness. How is it that Sodom will make better progress? because they didn't have the advantage that Chorazin and Bethsaida had as Jesus performed miracles among them. You're seeing this, and the theme here, Jonathan, is they're all there, okay? There's no eternal torment here. They're all there in this day of judgment, and the opportunity to grow through what they had done and what they were is equal, and, and Jesus is simply saying, some are going to have an easier time than others. And when we've been given greater light and we reject it, it makes it harder in the future to be able to get back th- things back in order the way they belong. And that brings us to our next piece of what Judgment Day uh, is, is, is about. And this is a really big piece, especially today. Judgment Day will focus on the intentions, words, and deeds of humanity. Now, now, Jonathan, I know, I know what you're going to say. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I'm ready. <laughs> Okay. Why? <laughs> <laughs> Why? Well, and you know what? And it's, it's such an important question to ask for the purpose of perfecting. Every aspect of Judgment Day is for the purpose of perfecting the people of the world. That's why it's there. Now, in regards to words and intentions specifically, we're going to break this down into two pieces. Jesus warned everyone that their careless words spoken now in this age will bring great responsibility later. Listen to this in Matthew 12, 33 to 37. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out that which fills the heart. The good man brings out his good treasure, what is good, and the evil man brings out his evil treasure, what is evil. So Jesus is putting things in a perspective saying the heart really does control the things that we say. And this is a very condemning thing for every one of us because, Jonathan, I know I have been far, 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 far from perfect with my words. And I imagine you might have missed once or twice in your time. Many more than you, brother, I'm sure. <laughs> All right, so so we get this sense of it's the heart that drives the words, and that's really where, where it's all going to settle into. Let's look at verses 36 and 37. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an account for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. No words go unnoticed for man's lives, and it's going to take a long time, years and years in the day of judgment, to recount their careless words. And especially now, today, words have become the tools of warfare 
in our social environment. Think about it. Think about social media. Think about quoting part of a truth but not the rest of it. Think about purposefully misquoting something just so people can follow along with you and feel sympathetic to this versus that. We are in such a place where our words are driving reactions of others. All of those words, Jonathan, need to be put back in place. And and each individual is, and you said it's going to take a long, 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 long time. That's why the day of judgment goes on for very, very long, a thousand years, okay? You got, you got plenty of time there. The reason for that is so that every individual can have ample opportunity to look at what they did, what they said, and say, wow, look at the damage that I caused. I need to make up for that. I need to fix that. That's what the day of judgment is for. So, you know, words are a big, big thing. Well, Jesus also warned everyone that their present deeds, the things that we do, also bring responsibility later in this day of judgment. Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Rick, what does repay every man mean? And is this also a process? It is also a process. And to repay every man according to his deeds means to say, here's what you did. Now you have to do something with what you did. Now, and you know, if you've ever been in a situation where you've done something wrong and you've had to go back and say, I messed this up. I said or did this and I led you to do that or I hurt you because of such and such and you work at making it right. You work at apologizing. You work at not just apologizing with words but being uh, apologetic in your actions, in your demeanor, in your mindset and in how you act from here on out. That's the process. That's the repayment. Repayment is fix what you broke. That's what it's really talking about here. There's a lot that has to do with words and deeds. That's the perfecting process. One, one more point on Judgment Day. Judgment Day will ultimately, and this is a tough point, it will ultimately bring death to those who refuse to love righteousness and mercy. And I think you have a question. Wait for it. <laughs> Why? <laughs> and for the purpose of maintaining a perfected society that is loyal to God. Everybody won't want to live in accordance with God's will and God's way. And so that's what happens. Death happens. We know that. and We know it's not eternal torment. We know it's death from Acts chapter 3, verses 19 to 23. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. This present evil world really needs a time of refreshing. You know, the period of restoration means restore back to its original condition. You know, I was thinking of the Garden of Eden and everything being in perfect harmony with God. Let's continue with verses 22 and 23. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Now, Rick, utterly destroyed means to extirpate, means to destroy completely or wipe out. Yeah, it's a very definitive approach to the end result of sinfulness. 
those who dwell in sinfulness will be destroyed. And, and, you know, we know that Satan will be destroyed. Now, in Revelation, it says he's thrown into this lake of fire. It means destruction. Let's not, let, let's not go down roads that don't exist scripturally. It means destruction. We know that destruction is important because you have to weed sin out and any who want to perpetrate it in that day after that day of judgment. You know, I find this hard to imagine, and it's so sad for those who will refuse to live in a perfect, yeah. righteous, and loving environment. I yeah. just can't wrap my head around it. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. But ample time and effort is given, and you have to make allowances for however many or however few there would be in that circumstance. So, so Jonathan, God's plan for perfection for all levels of his creation, where are we so far? Judgment sounds bad, but in the hands of the glorified Lord Jesus through the plan of God, it is actually a very good thing. The day of judgment's whole purpose will be for the perfecting of the world, individual by individual. This will assure that God's earthly creation will all be forever loyal to their creator. Now, there are principles in place for rehabilitation. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemies. Forgive one another. God's principles don't change from the old law covenant with the transition into the new law covenant. They don't. Those principles are always precise because that's what God requires of his human creation. So the perfecting of the world will be a systematic learning process that will give every individual a clear path to perfection. What are the bottom line results of this work of perfecting all of humanity, one individual at a time? The bottom line here, <laughs> the bottom line here is a staggering new reality. All humanity has ever known is sin, sickness, violence, and death. Their new reality will have all of those things sitting in their rare view mirror. Life will become opportunity prosperity, and peace, because all will become loyal to God, and all will be willing to do their part. Let's examine this. The mind of God, relating to his entire human creation, is plainly revealed in Scripture. And we're going to go to a Scripture we've gone to many, many times in the past, but it's, it's, it's just one of those texts that you just have to repeat because it helps us to understand. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Desire is to will, have in mind, intend, to be resolved or determined to purpose. So, you know, the New American Standard Bible used the word desires. It really, that, that's, that's too soft. God doesn't say, oh, I just would like this to happen. I wish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is not this is not God Almighty. The word means to be resolved or determined to purpose. God purposes this to happen. So, we've got two big points here, Jonathan. What are they? God will have all men to be saved. For what? From eternal death in Adam. And all men will understand, meaning they will have full discernment, that knowledge that they need. So, they will be saved because they will be ransomed and they will have full understanding. So, you know, it's interesting in, in this age, the process of perfection is learning through suffering, learning through trials and difficulties and, and in, in an imperfect, sinful world where there's persecution and, and all those kinds of things. 
in that time, their learning obedience will be by the things that they are being shown in a great and beautiful environment. It's a different process. It's still learning, but it's getting them to the point of perfection. The point here is Jesus' sacrifice does cover every sin from every human being. First John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. We'll stop after verse 1 briefly. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So we have an advocate with the Father. And we've talked about this so many times. For those followers of Christ, an advocate sits next to you and speaks on your behalf. The world, though, it's a slightly different situation because it's not an advocate. It ends up being a mediator. And verse 2 helps us to understand that. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Rick, this reminds me of the good news of great joy to all people. When the angel spoke to the shepherds, God revealed his plan for all. He did. And when you look at the scriptures that talk about Moses as a mediator between the men uh, and God, and Jesus will stand as mediator between men and God in that future age. And this is good news because you need the mediation as they go through that judgment day process that we just talked about in the last segment. Now, Jonathan, one, one of the stunning and exciting truths about the world's perfecting process is that those faithful ones who've already gone through their perfecting process in this age, faithful Christians, are specifically there in the next age to help everyone else. This scripture is magnificent. They're all magnificent, but this one's especially (laughs) magnificent in this moment, okay? 2 Corinthians 5, 18-19. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. The sad thing is that some of our Christian friends apply these verses only for now and not in the future kingdom work. There's a distinction between immortal life and everlasting life. The developmental process in this age of following in Jesus' footsteps brings immortal life, if faithful. The perfecting process in the next age brings eternal life to mankind. Those with immortal life, heavenly, are given the responsibility of heading up the reconciliation for those who have eternal life on earth. So you have the call to do two different kinds of perfection, and the ones that have to do the work now in a disadvantaged environment are the ones that will be in place to help the rest later on. And that really does, it's a beautiful way to put it in place to realize that this scripture, this ministry of reconciliation, is not just merely here. This is just a a, a tiny little piece. And what a purpose that gives us in our lives to want to help others, Rick. That's the point. So the results of resurrection and judgment. Let's look at the results. Scripturally, prophetically, let's look at the results. Israel and Jerusalem will be the source of earthly blessing. This, what we're getting into now, is a very small preview into part three next week regarding Israel's being perfected as a nation. This prophecy in Isaiah 2 verse 3 is a picture of a future government. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. 
for the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And that's a pretty plain statement. And, you know, you look at the world around us, especially the turmoil that we're in the midst of right now, and this is a prophecy that says that the many peoples will come to the mountain of the Lord, to the God of Jacob, Zion, Jerusalem. You've got Israel in the middle of the glory of God's plan. We're going to really expand that next episode. The environment for this development that we're talking about here in the Isaiah scripture, the environment will be firmly under the control of the glorified Lord Jesus. And again, another Old Testament prophecy to explain that to us. Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delighteth, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry, nor lift up his voice, nor cause it to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick will he not quench. He will bring forth justice in truth. This is showing us that no small detail will be overlooked. Jesus has always been gentle, kind, merciful, and patient. That will never change. We would expect nothing less. Let's continue with verse 4. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has set justice in the earth, and the isles shall wait for his law. The justice set in the earth is pictured beautifully in Revelation 21, 1 through 4, where he says, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And that word new means made fresh. It describes God dwelling among mankind and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And see, we're looking at a, a finished picture, or an almost finished picture, and understand the Day of Judgment is in this context. This is the context in which that judgment is working. So righteousness will rule while the earth blossoms and humanity is healed and is learning God's ways. Another Old Testament prophecy, and we don't have time to go through a lot of it, but Isaiah chapter 35, let's look at verses 1 and 2, then verses 5 and 6. The wilderness and the desert will be glad, and the Arabah will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy, for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streets in the Arabah. Now, this is not a picture language in describing heaven. No. This is an earthly prophecy being fulfilled. Remember the Lord's Prayer, which describes this kingdom on earth. Obviously, this is an earthly picture. And, and for those of us who put it in heaven because we don't know what to do with it, here's an idea. Take the prophecies and listen to what they teach us, and then look at them as this is the unfolding of God's will. So let's go a little further with Isaiah 35. Along with the healing of the earth and the physical maladies of humanity, here's the thing, humanity's character maladies will also be made 100% curable if we choose to do the work. 100% curable. Isaiah 35, verses 8 through 10. 
a highway will be there, a roadway, and it will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him who walks that way, and fools will not wander on it. No lion will be there, nor will any vicious beast go up on it. These will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord will return. Let me pause here, Rick. The ransom to the Lord means all the ransom to the Lord. You know, this includes infants who died, and they'll be returned to their parents in the resurrection. They'll be given an environment to thrive. The parents' hearts will heal after such a devastating loss. They will be given the gift to lead them in righteousness. That's just one example of the value of Jesus's ransom sacrifice. Can you imagine the joy? And you're right. That's just one tiny little example. We've got thousands and thousands of years of mess, and all of those thousands of years are able to be put in place by these prophecies. This is what God's plan is. And look at the way the verse ends. I mean, you talk about joy. And come with joyful shouting to Zion with everlasting joy upon their heads. Everlasting joy upon their heads. You know what that means? It means it doesn't stop. It's always there. It's perpetual. They will find gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Think about that. That's where the day of judgment brings the people. That's why this judgment is so good. This is the perfecting process we were talking about. There will be unquestionable access to understanding of God's ways. Quick scripture, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now that's comprehensive. Boy, is this a happily ever after. Uh, back to it, are you? See, and, and, <laughs> and you can see now when we're putting all these things together, how that really begins to fit in. So let's look at just one, one more verse on this, because same thing, Jonathan, same things. Psalm 22, verses 27 and 28. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. There you go. And you're saying, you're, you're talking about happily ever after, right? That's it. Okay. Well, actually, we're going to add to that. Let's put this in perspective one last time. God's plan for perfection for all levels of creation. And then let's add to the happily ever after. The healing process for all of humanity truly begins with their resurrection and the day of judgment. This judgment will be a catalyst for growth, change, and making right what each did wrong in the past. This true and complete healing will bring all who choose life to 100% loyalty to their creator. And they will live not merely happily ever after, but righteously ever after. And that's the key. They will all live righteously ever after because the characters of mankind, they will be revamped. They will be reshaped. They will be remolded. They will be refocused. They will be repurposed. They'll be revitalized. They need to be reconciled, reconciled with God and his will for life and harmony to be what they're supposed to be. And that's what eternity is going to be looking like in the future. What we see here is the process of perfecting of the human race. Those who do not believe in Jesus now, those who do not follow Jesus now, those who are against him, those who have always been against him, those who have done heinous criminal, uh, criminal activities. What it means is they will have the opportunity, not a guarantee, an opportunity 
to make their lives right by being given all of the tools. Forgiveness will reign. Harmony will reign. The perfection of God's creation and what it was meant to be will reign here on the earth. And that's why in Jesus' prayer, he said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Think about it. Folks, we love hearing from you. Please give us your feedback on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Coming up next week, part three. 